Welcome to Brain and Avat. Uh, we have a really exciting uh, guest tonight. Um, we have Rebecca uh, Tuval, who is uh, teaching at uh, Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, and has a, a forthcoming book coming out quite soon entitled Changing Identities. And we're going to be talking about one of my favorite episodes of Black Mirror, which raises a whole bunch of quite exciting philosophical questions. Um, so Rebecca, would you like to start with um, a thought experiment from that? teaching an introduction to philosophy course using the series Black Mirror for a few semesters now. And the Striking Vipers episode that viewers may be familiar with uh, raises many fascinating philosophical questions as does um, many other, as do many other Black Mirror episodes. So I figured I'd start out with a clip. Hey there. Hey, I can't play long. I, uh, oh, sure, me too. Look, last time we played, I was drunk, man. From the party. Me too. Cool. Okay. Be good to have a serious game, you know? Serious game. Serious game. Here we go. Better kick your ass, motherfucker. Yeah? You're gonna try. Round one. Fight! Guess that's us gay now. That's a joke. <laughs> Don't feel like a gay thing. Uh, what is it? Jesus. Exit gay. <laughs> what? Playing uh, characters in this. Uh, virtual world and they're initially fighting like they used to do back in college and then then uh, they start having sex with their avatars. So I think the episode raises many fascinating philosophical questions indicated early on by you know the very first scene of the episode where Danny and Theo are at a bar kind of engaging in role play and uh, they, you know, they both say, you know, that they're in, into role play and it kind of sets up the later questions about 
um, I think the ethics of, of relationships more broadly. So there's tons of fascinating questions here about, you know, whether or not Danny is cheating on Theo. So what, what is cheating? <laughs> um, does cheating need to involve you know, actual physical sexual intimacy with somebody else? Uh, can it only involve uh, sexual arousal with somebody maybe through uh, virtual you know, means? Uh, does it need to involve a deceptive element? Right? So later on in the episode, we see that they agree to a kind of open arrangement of sorts, uh, wherein Danny gets to meet up with Carl uh, once a year on his birthday and go into the the striking vipers universe and uh, and have this best most transcendent sex of their lives according to Carl um, and Theo gets to date uh, or go go to bars and kind of hook up with men who are hitting on her um, so I think that's one series of philosophical questions uh, that we can ask and then the other major question that's raised is you know, by that line in that clip where Carl in his avatar form says, guess that's us gay now. And Danny says, well, it doesn't feel like a gay thing. And this is a big question for viewers, right? Does this mean that they are in fact gay? Um, what does it mean to be gay? What does it mean to be straight, right? What is sexual orientation? Is it mostly about our, um, sexual desires, sexual fantasies, sexual acts, does it involve a kind of emotional romantic element? I'd like to start with this question of sexual orientation. Um, I understand that there's a lot of different definitions of sexual orientation and it's shifted over time. So um, perhaps uh, early on at the time of Kinsey um, and the behaviorists um, like William James, William James, I think that was his name, um, they thought that sexual orientation was about uh, your behavior. So they defined, for example, homosexuality as um, you, you're a homosexual person if you're the kind of person who has sex with uh, people of the same gender or the same sex as you. Um, now, over time, that definition has shifted where behavior is only one element um, and there would be a num number of other elements that have been inserted, like uh, um, your your romantic attachments, whether your romantic attachments are to a certain gender, um, and and uh, even, even so far as your political orientations. So you know, are you are you a Democrat? Um, mm -hmm. So a, as a gay man myself, I'm I don't support democratic or Democrat politics, and so I have I've been told before. But then you're not gay. Um, but let's let's put all of those issues aside and just focus on sexual orientation, the behavioral aspects of sexual orientation. So what's mm -hmm. so interesting about the episode is that in real life, um, these two characters are male. Um, and when they get into um, the virtual world, into the Striking Vipers world, one of them is female, um, has a virtual avatar who's female. So, so the question is when, when those two avatars have sex, um, the one is male, the one is female, it seems on the one hand that the avatars are heterosexual, right? But on the other hand, those avatars are driven by two men. So, so the question is, where does the identity lie in, in the formula that you plug in to decide whether they're gay or straight? 
Um, and I'm just curious what your answer to that question is. Yes. Yeah, I love all of that. Thank you. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the behavioral approach to sexual orientation, you know, I, I think there are some pretty compelling critiques of that approach to sexual orientation. You know, one pretty obvious critique is that it looks like we grant that there are people with certain sexual orientations who can't enact the behaviors that they would enact because of perhaps, you know, oppression and homophobia and, you know, maybe growing up in a hyper-religious context. And then it would seem if that their behaviors don't, in fact, match their uh, sexual orientation. And so I'm, I'm friendlier now to these dispositional accounts of sexual orientation that are increasingly um, proposed that track, uh, you know, dispositions to engage with certain types of, of sexes or genders, uh, and that can be, um, that can be affected by uh, things like appearance and personality and all that. So there, there's been some really exciting philosophical work in, recently in, in that area. Uh, back to the characters specifically. So, so yeah, I think at least on kind of standard interpretations of what it means to be gay and what it means to be straight. I think Carl would really only plausibly be um, considered gay, at least on the, the widespread understanding of sexual orientation that says the object, um, for instance, for a male would have to also be male, right? So Carl is actually, um, having sex with a male avatar. And I think Danny, it's not clear, it's not clear what is motivating Danny, right? Danny, we know is bored with suburban domestic life, not unlike his wife, Theo. And he gets to have sex with, uh, you know, a female avatar. And obviously, the fact that it's Carl is really important to him too, right? There's that emotional element but, but the female form, I think, is, is really fundamental to, to his attraction. Um, but again, I mean, it, it's so messy because there's tons of ways that you could cash out sexual orientation. But I guess I'd say, at least on the standard understanding, uh, I think we could maybe suggest that Carl is may maybe bisexual. So what is the object of your desire? Uh, or the objects of your behavior, even if we think of that dispositionally, right? So, so that's fine. I don't mind having a dispositional count. That's, that's no problem. So the dispositional count would say that uh, given the right circumstances, you are apt to um, have sex with someone of the same gender. That would be the dispositional count, uh, dispositional behavioral count of homosexuality or of, of gayness. Um, and of course, you could get much more complicated versions of that, but let's put, put that aside. Um, yes. so, so, so what I'm very curious about is when you say the object, because is, mm. is, is, it, is the object of their desire the avatar, or is the object of their desire the person driving the avatar? I would say with Carl, it seems quite clear that the object of his sexual arousal and attraction is Danny, because he says, I've tried other things, you know, he, he says, look, I've gone around and explored the virtual universe and I have had sex with other, you know, VR uh, 
players. I had sex even with the, the polar bear character, you know, and he says nothing matches it, right? Whether or not it's computer controlled characters or real players, right? I, I need you, right? You, you were the best sex of my life. And he suggests that something similar is going on with Danny, but Danny doesn't really confirm whether or not that is the case. So it, it would seem to be that, that the attraction for Danny is also, also lies at least significantly with, with Carl, but we, we don't really know uh, because Danny also hasn't explored the alternatives as much. Maybe it's different for both of them. See, ordinarily, I think the account makes sense to sort of look at who the object of the desire is. What complicates things in this case is that the subject is different. So Carl, in, in reality, is a black man and in um, the virtual space is an Asian woman. And it appears to be the case that he says, as an Asian woman, I'm attracted to you um, through when, uh, expresses this avatar. Um, so my desire is to be with a man, but as a woman. Um, and so we might then think that pulls the rug from the idea that this is a gay relationship. You know, really the desire is um, a straight relationship um, just through a, a change in the sexual identity of, of Carl. Yes, except I would say like, be, because he inhabits that female gender identity so briefly and so kind of superficially, to me, I think it, it's difficult to make the case that he kind of truly comes to identify fully with the female gender identity. It seems more of a opportunity for playful kind of exploratory um, sexual experiences. Yeah, that's interesting. So we could cash it out differently. I mean, if we sort of set aside the, what happens in the script, we could just imagine someone else going through this and having different ways of thinking about it. So the one would be, as you say, um, no, I always see myself as a man and that this is just a, a play doll that I use in a sort of overtly gay relationship. The other one is to say, well, no, I'm gender fluid. And when I'm in that character, I am a woman and all my maleness is shed. And, and I find it just repugnant. I would never engage in a gay relationship. You know, I'm actually quite homophobic. Um, but as a woman, I'm happy to be with a man because, you know, that's a good old-fashioned straight relationship. So, Mark, I've actually yeah. written a story just like this with exactly the storyline. Uh, it's called The Experience Machine. And it's about a, a guy named Manfred. Um, and Manfred puts on his skull cap and he sheds his male form and and in the virtual world is a woman who loves being a woman um, and falls in love with men um, and exists in this beautiful virtual space among the stars and dances with these beautiful prints like men. Um, but when, when Manfred comes out of, of the virtual world, he does not identify as gay, is not attracted to men, uh, and is very much heterosexual. And there's a moment in this episode where the two characters meet in the rain. It's a sort of classic romantic way of sort of having the star-crossed lovers meet. And, you know, they get out of their cars and they sort of have this like kind of fist-fighty moment in the rain and then they have this kiss. And it's a sense of we need to do this to know. And both of them are repelled and they say, well, there's, there's nothing sexual in this moment. 
you know, we can only really have this desire in the virtual space. Yeah, I love that moment because I think it's really difficult to know just what to infer from that moment. So yeah, they, they're like, we need to find out if this is for real. And so we're going to kiss each other in real life. And, you know, Carl says, nope, nothing there. And Danny says, yeah, me neither. Um, and yet, like, again, because we live in a society where, you know, homophobia is rampant and transphobia is rampant and all of that, I think it's, it's tricky to know um, exactly what, what, what we learn about their base desires kind of in, in that moment. Um, you know, is the online world one in which they can more safely explore kind of some of these um, identity uh, threatening kinds of experiences, uh, whereas in the offline space, they're possibly so terrifying and identity crushing that to, kind of, to really get to the point of, of picturing what it might be like is just such a barrier that, that they don't know. So I, I guess I read that moment as kind of leaving a lot of questions for the viewers still. So, so I, I think you've answered that question really well. Um, but now here's a harder one because it relies kind of on, on an answer to the first question um, is, is there infidelity that happens um, in, in a virtual space? And the reason I say it's related to the first question is because, well, you know, are they engaging in sex at all? Are they engaging in sex as themselves? Um, you know, where does the identity lie with themselves or with the avatar? Um, and yeah, I, I, I'll let you flesh it out, but, but are, they, are, they, are they having an affair? Yes, I love that question too. And Theo says to Danny at one point, you know, are you seeing someone? And he says, no. And, you know, as a viewer, I think many people have the kind of gut reaction that he's lying. Uh, obviously, are you seeing somebody is, is broad. It's not saying, you know, are you having sex with somebody else? But it certainly implies that something he is doing outside of the relationship is both unknown to her and having an adverse impact on their relationship. So... I tend to think that when we, when we think about cheating, the question really comes down to deception. Um, so I think you know, the fact that um, she was just unaware that he was engaging in, in acts that were impacting his sexual you know, relationship to her that were clearly sexually arousing in some way. We can also ask what is a sexual act and all of that. Um, but I would say it, it's not just that it took place outside of the primary relationship because obviously as they come to agree in the end to a kind of open relationship arrangement, which, which increasingly folks are doing, I would say it's no longer cheating. It's no longer deceptive at that point. But I would say he is cheating um, prior to that because there's this deception surrounding sexual um, you know, acts with another. I wonder if we can think about a, a spectrum of different kinds of, let's say, sexual deception inside of a relationship. So one is um, 
you're married and in your spare time you write erotic novels and you don't tell your spouse this. Um, let's say you're even a character in the erotic novels and you're writing about um, that character having sex with, with other people. Would we think you were having an affair? I would think not. I think that seems like a stretch. Even though we have the deception, it's of a sexual nature. It involves, let's say, internal desires for other people. Um, the other kind might be that you, you watch pornography, which involves other real people. Uh, we could then add up a notch that you um, have a regular cam relationship with someone, but who you never meet in real life. Um, and let's say that you um, either you pay them uh, or you don't pay them, but there's a sort of strong sexual desire with the other person and it's communicative in nature. Um, and I wonder again, are we in the, in the realm of, is that interactive pornography um, or is that, is that true infidelity? Um, I mean, we could imagine sort of other cases where, you know, the, the, the typical case is you, you're having a physical relationship with someone else um, without your spouse knowing about it. And I'm assuming that they would have some desire for you not to do that. Um, you could imagine a situation, let's say, where um, your spouse feels nothing about that or feels a strong desire about it. Even if you don't tell them, they would be happy for you to be um, sleeping with other people without their consent uh, and wouldn't see it as a breach of, uh, a breach of their trust or, or a breach of their values. Um, so I, I wonder how these things sort of, as the series of different cases, try and push our intuitions. And at one point, I think Carl tries to, tries to alleviate Danny's guilt by saying it's not cheating. It's, it's more like porn or something like that. Um, so, okay, let me try to work through whether or not what I said initially can be uh, defended on this front. So, so based on what I said, which is that it would need to interfere with the sexual relationship um, between the primary partners in some adverse way. I think lots of sexual acts um, don't do that, right? So people <laughs> masturbate, people watch porn, people maybe write uh, erotic novels that uh, sexually arouse them. And, and I think if it's not having an, an impact on the, the sexual um, relationship to the point where the partner like Theo might say, what is going on? something is different, such that the opportunity for the, the lie kind of comes out. Um, I, I think I would st try to still construe it in, in that way. I mean, it, and then it, too, I mean, writing erotic novels, I and mean, if this is a significant part of, of something you are doing, but you want to keep it private from your partner, which, you know, I think there's lots of defensible <laughs> things that you can keep private from your partner. Uh, obviously, it does seem though, when it starts to have uh, that interference. I don't know. Let push me more on this. I'm just yeah. So I'll I'll give you I'll give you two iterations of it that I think make it difficult for you. The one is okay. the guy who writes the erotic novel feels immense guilt and it ruins his sex life with his spouse. Yeah. The other one who has sex with four different women a day. Um, in in fact, he just feels so invigorated by all of this. Um, not deception that the sex life is even better with his partner. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I think we think not cheating in the first case, cheating in the second case, even though the, mm -hmm. your, your criterion of adverse sexual impact um, goes the other way. So I'm not so sure it works. Okay. As a criterion. I think this is very helpful. 
I think I would call both of those cheating and maybe I need to just adjust the adverse label of the impact. It has to have a kind of um, notable impact perhaps, because I mean, it seems to me in the second scenario too, you know, somebody is engaging in sexual acts or behaviors right outside of the relationship uh, in, in such a way that the partner might come to wonder what what changed here right something is is different and then it then it seems to become an issue of of honest communication more which is where i want to ground the nature but, of the infidelity. But there's, that help? There's, there's yeah. more kind examples, right? So we can imagine the, the sociopathic uh, husband who has sex with others. It does not invigorate him to come home to his wife, um, but it also doesn't wow. deter him. He's just unfazed. Uh, he just, he just, it is unnotable uh, in, in their sex lives. Um, so it would follow that criterion. But it seems yeah. like he's I, I also thought there's also some difficult cases then for you that don't involve necessarily sleeping with other people. Yeah. Um, so yeah. cases which involve, um, they, they involve um, a notable difference uh, to your relationship um, and they may involve deception as well. Suppose I have a good friend that I like to spend time with um, and this good friend helps me come to terms with problems in my relationship with you. Um, then it seems like my relationship with you is affected, notably. Um, there's no sex that happens. Um, is it cheating? Um, so on, on your account, it would be, right? Because unless you insert a third criterion, which is sex. Right, and I, I think we do make those distinctions though. We might differentiate in everyday parlance between sexual cheating and versus emotional cheating, let's say. And again, because much sex involves the emotional element for some people, maybe the lines are blurred, but, but for others it might not. And again, I think I would say in that case, if the nature of the emotional bond that you've created with another is, is becoming so kind of fundamental to, to you or to the relationship that you have with your primary partner, but that they're unaware of it, uh, then that's when I think maybe responsibility to um, communicate something about, about that. That's what happens in the episode, really. I mean, she keeps saying, you're different, you're different, something's wrong. And, you know, he's trying to deny it, but he's not having sex with her in the end. He's obviously depressed and not talking and whatnot. And, you know, he gets to a point where he's like, well, I've obviously got to... And I think I would say he would have been obligated to say something to her, even if what he had been doing with Carl was just having really late night chats. Is it as bad... So, so is, is, you know, is it, when you say it's cheating, okay, so let's, let's, let's agree, right? So let's assume it's cheating. Is cheating a spectrum um, in the way that Mark suggested? Um, or is, is cheating, it either is cheating or it's not. And if it is, it's bad. And if it's not, it's fine. Um, or at least it's not wrong for the, for the reason that it's cheating. Um, yeah. I definitely think that there are degrees of the wrongness of cheating, for sure. Um, and I think those depend on the idiosyncratic relationship because some people might be 
really hurt by the emotional cheating much more than the sexual cheating, right? That for them, the sexual cheating just isn't, isn't the thing that worries them as much. What they're really terrified of is their partner kind of becoming emotionally attached to someone else and leaving them. So I think that would have to be very context specific, like whether, but again, I would tether it to what is the understanding between those partners about the kind of fidelity expected from, right? So I'm very curious, there's something I'm very curious about. I mean, the, the, the episode is, is definitely tying in with this phenomenon of sexting, cheating through sexting that's, that, that has happened more and more over, over the last decade or so. Um, but I wonder, I wonder whether VR cheating is not as bad as sexting. Yeah. And I'll tell you why. It's because it seems like in the sexting case, I am sexting you. And so if, if we're not in a relationship and we're each in our own relationships, it seems like we're cheating, right? But in the VR case, the argument could be made, I am not, I'm not having sex with you. I'm having sex with your avatar or my avatar is having sex with your avatar. It's not even me. It's my avatar is having sex with your avatar. In other words, there's no, there's no actual interaction between me and you. It's between my avatar and your avatar. And so if there is cheating, it seems a much greater remove. I don't know. I'm thinking of sexting and VR kind of very much as comparable when it comes to like the gap between, you know, cheating with you versus through a technological medium, because you know, they're still talking to each other in the virtual space. And in sexting, you know, you're, you're, you're not physically in each other's presence, right? There's still that, that virtual barrier of some, or a technological barrier. Um, I think that the VR cheating would be less bad if it was maybe just computer controlled characters. I think that then the distinction to me, I think, would be much more um, distinctive because, like, if it's Carl, if he's sexting with Carl, or if he's, I would, I would actually maybe even go the opposite of what you suggested. There that it's worse. Say, say that it's worse because there's, yeah, there's there's m more of a semblance of you know real kind of physical and deep emotional kind of connection in the VR world than, than when they're sexting, which by comparison pales, I think, in intensity. So there's an interesting tension. I mean, I think if we think about how digital characters generally interact with each other, there are a lot of violent video games where, you know, one person is playing another person, playing with friends, and you're trying to kill the other one. Um, and it would seem strange to complain that, you know, you have any real animus towards me that you hate me, that you want to kill me and say, no, no, my character killed your character. And so this is all in the realm of fantasy. Whereas the sexting case seemed quite intimate in the sense that I'm telling you how I feel about you. And it's just that we're not in each other's physical presence. Um, at the same token, as you say, the VRness of it does seem to change the stakes because there's a haptic feedback. There's a sense of physicality in it. Um, and I suppose part of it is trying to work out whether you believe that this is avatars being with each other or whether the avatars are just a, a smokescreen um, for, you know, uh, for another way of these two people having sex with each other. 
um, and that if they were comfortable removing the smoke screen, as you say, you know, maybe it's just a useful way of kind of avoiding the uh, transphobia or the homophobia. Um, and, and actually, it's just about a connection between these two human beings in a, you know, physical, sensual way. Yeah, I, I think the episode would be so different if they just had sex in the virtual world and then exit game and they're out and that's it. But they have these meaningful kind of romantic conversations afterward and, and it, it's, it's very much like they're falling in love with each other on my reading of it. So there's another quite fascinating aspect um, of this episode, which is to try and work out on the, the two trans issues that seem to arise. So you've got two black men in the real world who then inhabit avatars who are different races and the one is of a different sex. Uh, and let's assume for the sake of argument that um, they really do come to identify with their avatars in, in a more and more serious sense. And let's, let's just you know, step out of the episode for a bit. Let's assume that they, they plug into the, the machines all the time. So they yeah. abandon their original bodies and they become these, these beings. Yeah. So um, do we think that that's, is it, is it accurate then if they did that to say that there has been a transition um, on the grounds of sex? So in other words, um, for, for Carl who becomes a woman, do we say that Carl now is a woman? Um, or does he require some physical body to do this? You know, what are the requirements to have the transition? And, but let, let's focus just on the transgender case first and let's see whether our intuitions plug over afterwards to a transracial case. Something I think happens all too often in discussions about identity is we conflate a number of different senses of identity kind of under the umbrella of identity. But in fact, there's many different elements to identity. So you know, to pull from someone like Irving Goffman, he talked about, you know, felt identity that's kind of more you know the the private sense that you'd have of uh you know your own um situation and character and then personal identity which has more to do with biographical facts about you like on your birth certificate and that sort of thing um and then social identity is more about how you are kind of categorized by others um, and then Robin Dembroff and um, St. Croix have introduced this concept of agential identity, which I find very helpful too, because that's a notion of identity um, according to which somebody tries to align their social identity with their felt identity. Anyway, those are just some different conceptions of identity, but I think they're all relevant to answering this question because so you asked, you know, does he become a woman? So I, if you believe that part of what it means to be a woman involves being socially read as a woman, which is, is increasingly an unpopular view, uh, especially uh, in, you know, with uh, trans friendly kind of conceptions of, of gender. Um, then what's unclear is, is how much they're interacting, you know, in that world. You, you stipulated that they would just be living that way in the world. And so I would say socially in the VR world, he would be read as a woman and taken up that way. And so I would say socially he's a woman. You also said that he kind of comes to identify that way. And so 
his own felt identity would be that of a woman, at least in that context. And maybe we could say that he's uh, got a kind of gender fluid identity more broadly, perhaps if, you know, in the offline reality, he still identifies as a man, but then when he goes into the online reality, he identifies as a woman. So I wonder, let's, let's assume we do have the situation where Carl is in digital space some of the time and in the meat space the other times and has moments in the meat space. Um, and I'll, I'll try and use, let's say, neutral language on, on so, I don't, so I don't beg the question. Carl views themselves as a woman sometimes, but yeah. Carl's presence in the physical space is unaltered. Um, does Carl become a woman um, merely through a change in internal identity um, in terms of belief? Um, does it require other things? So the one would be to say, let's say, ask other people to recognize them as a woman, um, you know, to, to, to express the desire to others, or, or does it require something else as well, which is to, as you say, be read as a woman, which means to be then expressed physically as a woman, to change uh, physical features, to change uh, dress sense, you know, what are the different levels before we say this person has now transitioned um, from yeah. being a man to becoming a woman? Yeah, great, great question. So I would say too, um, being kind of socially read as a woman doesn't require that you, you know, alter uh, your physical appearance in any way necessarily. Partly it, it will depend on the context you're in and how much people within that context are willing to treat you according to your stated identity. So, you know, in many, again, like queer trans friendly communities, you don't need to present as, you know, a stereotypical um, woman according to kind of traditional notions of femininity in order to be read as a woman. So I would just say, uh, just to mention that too, I think that, that I think self-identification um, is increasingly um, you know, the metric that uh, that we are using to accord these identities um, to to people. Obviously, there's like <laughs> circularity questions that um, immediately uh, come up. But um, on on my view, like a self self understanding of uh, oneself as as a woman, backed up too with uh, kind of either narrative or um, kind of behavioral um, evidence that speaks to the sincerity of this identity claim uh, is important um, to me when it comes to questions of how it is that we should uh, ascribe uh, identities. So. You know, I'm very much sympathetic to those accounts that are, are trying to increasingly align our practices of gendering and of racing um, in accordance with how people understand their own genders and races and identities. So I want to ask an, another interesting question. So let's say Carl identifies as a woman and decides to change their name to Caroline. Mm. Now, there's a I think quite an interesting taboo around this notion of dead naming. In other words, the idea that once Carl has become Caroline, 
Um, the claim yeah. is that you can never say there was a call. Um, and there has always been a caroling. And so on, what I want to know is, um, is, this, is this the correct way of understanding what has occurred, which is to deny a transition, to say there was a person called Caroline who was born in 1983 and they were always a woman? Um, or do we say, you know, there was a person called Carl, born in 1983, and in 2017, changed their identity and became a Carolyn. Right. I'm so glad you asked this question. I've thought a lot about the, the dead naming issue ever since it, it came up uh, during the whole controversy over my article on transracialism a few years ago. And I've really come to think that you know, dead naming, at least if we define it just in terms of referring to you know, the, the appellation that somebody had, you know, prior to transitioning. So um, Carl versus, what did you say? Caroline, Caroline. Carl versus Caroline. That is not in, it, in and of itself morally objectionable, right? You'd need to add certain layers on, onto it to make it um, objectionable. So for instance, if Caroline was, is trans, but is not out as a trans person, right? So, so Caroline just identifies as, as a woman and, and people aren't familiar with, um, with Caroline being trans, then to, you know, to publicly refer to Caroline's former identity is an objectionable form of dead naming. Um, you know, in my article, I referred to Caitlyn Jenner's former appellation as Bruce Jenner, which Caitlyn herself does in her book. It's very publicly known that she transitioned and, um, and all of that. Uh, and so I, I, I don't think that that's uh, objectionable if, you know, the individual in question is not, um, is not demanding others, that others, you know, not acknowledge uh, their own identity. And in fact, Caitlyn Jenner is one of these people who says, you know, that part of my life was important. And actually, I don't care to erase that part of my life by saying, you know, that I was always, um, you know, self-identified uh, as a woman. So, so I think, again, it, it comes down to the specifics, although I agree that as a general rule, uh, it's best to uh, not to refer to the former appellation of trans individuals because uh, you obviously don't know um, whether or not you're outing somebody or doing something that they you know, would find identity compromising. Yeah, I thought this, there seems to be another funny implication about the historical revisionism. So I, I have two mm -hmm. friends uh, who were um, one of South Africa's first lesbian marriages. One of them um, became a man later in the relationship, um, changed their name and changed their identity. And the difficulty with um, this idea that uh, Felix was always Felix as opposed to Felicity um, implies that they were, there was never a lesbian marriage, uh, that there was always a straight marriage, um, that what you had was a woman who married a man um, because there was never a Felicity. And that seems to my mind, you know, a kind of a homophobic erasure um, and an implication of this sort of notion that, you know, to deny a transition. I think the example that you give of outing someone, um, you know, seems like a good case where you've done something immoral because you've released some sort of private information which they would have preferred to keep private. But that's a very separate question as to what's going on metaphysically 
um, or historically. Some cases it might in fact be true that the felt identity of an individual was all along, um, you know, that of a woman, let's say, but maybe socially, uh, you know, they were um, presenting as a man and maybe, you know, publicly identified as a man. Um, so then I would say, again, we just got to keep those distinct. It could be the case that their felt identity, though, was all along, you know, that of who they later transitioned to. And in that case, there wouldn't be a kind of historical revisionism going on when you say, but that was my identity all along. So really, it's just going to matter what aspect of identity we're discussing. Um, so something I'm curious about, uh, Mark alluded to a little bit earlier when he set up this case, um, is he asked you, well, what are the conditions under which Carl would be called a woman? You discussed two possible criteria. The one was um, self-identity and the other was the way other people would treat you. Um, and you also discussed various uh, variations of those. Um, but then the second question that Mark raised implicitly was, in the case of um, having an avatar that is of a different race from your original race, what are the conditions under which you would be considered that race? So Carl, I think, becomes an Asian woman. He has an Asian avatar. So we can imagine in, in Mark's case, Mark's extension of the case, that Carl comes to fully identify with this yeah. um, Asian woman. Um, question one was, is, is, is she now a woman? Um, question two is, is she now Asian? Um, and... And it seems like the answers to the two questions might be different. People think that how you are racialized by others is the major criterion that determines your race. But, you know, increasingly there, there is recognition of the importance of like felt racial uh, identity and Mixed race individuals in the U.S. in particular will, uh, you know, self-identify um, sometimes in ways that are at odds with how they are read. And obviously, we've got a rise in uh, these highly controversial cases of people like um, Rachel Dolezal, but more recently, like Jessica Krug, identifying in ways that are at odds with, you know, their own biographical identities or ancestries. All that. There's just a, a difference here between like descriptively how it is that we currently ascribe race and normatively how I think we ought to be um, thinking about ascribing race, which for me is more on the model of how we've discussed um, gender. So in other words, more in line with how people self-identify. But again, when I say self-identify, I mean how they understand themselves, but, but that's not only it, right? That there's, there's got to be some way to back up the sincerity of that self-understanding, whether it be through um, a kind of narrative uh, experience or certain, you know, behavioral um, uh, ev forms of evidence that, that show this person truly, you know, does identify as a member of, let's say, the Black community um, and, you know, and their request to be read as such um, very much speaks to that sincere uh, identification. So I, I, wanna, I want to push this. Uh, I want to push it quite hard. 
Okay. So, so the traditional view, as you said, it may be shifting now, um, but still I would say it's the, the majority view, especially amongst left-leaning um, people, is that it is perfectly acceptable to self-identify um, as transgendered, and so you are transgendered, right, on the one hand. Okay, so that's claim one. Uh, second claim uh, is that it is, there is something wrong with identifying uh, as black if you were born as white, um, and that identifying as black does not automatically, uh, self-identifying, even if it's sincere, does not automatically generate uh, your race it, it, it doesn't transracialize you automatically, right? Because, because let's say the community rejects you as a black person. Now, let, that's the traditional view. And as you say, there could be some people who disagree with this and it might be shifting, um, but it's, it's a view that, that you covered really, really nicely in your paper. Um, and in your paper, what you do is you look at a number of ways that people might object, right? Reasons that they might have for thinking, okay, um, we can apply different criteria in the racial case and the gender case. Um, I want to present you with a, another objection, uh, which I don't okay. think you covered there, but I, I might have missed it, but, but here's another objection. Okay, so here's, and I'm playing devil's advocate here because um, my, my, yeah, so, so my PhD was on social groups arguing that they don't exist at all. Okay, but just for, the, for, just for a moment, we're going to assume that social groups exist. Okay. okay. Now, something that I'm, I think is very important when discussing social groups is distinguishing between what's called social groups and mere aggregates. So when we talk about a mere aggregate, it's just, it's just a sum of individuals, but they don't cohere sufficiently to be called a social group. So you might imagine all persons that have ever worn brown shoes are a mere aggregate of individuals, but many people think that races are social groups, okay? Mm -hmm. That they, they cohere enough, the members of that race cohere enough and have a sufficient uh, um, shared experience or felt experience um, or, or experience of the world to be called a social group, right? Now, here's, here's, the, here's the solution to the problem that could be offered. Perhaps the view would be that races are social groups but genders are not. So the view would be that genders are mere aggregates of individuals with a certain feature or set of features, whereas racial groups are social groups. And, and now when we couple that with Gilbert's account of social groups, which is very similar to yours. So Gilbert says that in order to belong to a social group, you have to self-identify. And I think she would agree that it needs to be sincere. So you need to believe that you're a member of the group. You also need to believe that there are other people that are members of the group. And those people that you believe are, are, that are members of the group must believe it of you. And they need to believe it of themselves, right? So there's this reciprocity that's required. Um, so self-identity, plus others identifying me as a member of group and me identifying them and they identifying themselves. So now let's, let's apply that account of social groups to races, okay? okay? And say, well, 
I'm black, if I identify as black and they identify me as black and they identify themselves as black. It's that second requirement that's missing in the racial case, in the transracial case. It's what's missing in the transracial case. So, but now in the gender case, let's assume that they're a mere aggregate. This is, this is the proposed solution I have, right? To make sense okay. of the distinction. So let's assume that in, in the gender case, I am a woman, not because I'm part of a social group of women, but just because I share a set of features with other individuals, like all of us wearing brown shoes. Now, what those features are is going to be very complicated to, to cash out because, you know, there's lots of discussion about what makes a woman a woman. Is it, uh, is it a set of biological features? Is it genetic features? Is it self-identification features? Whatever those features are, we can debate what those are, but whatever they are, they're just like brown shoes. They're just features that people have, but they're not about a social group. It's not about belonging to a social group. And so uh -huh. if we take this account that being part of a certain race means belonging to a social group, but being part of a gender, having, having a gender does not mean being part of a social group, then you might account for why some people believe or many people believe that you can't just move races through self-identity, but you can through, um, through gender. Through trans transgenderism, so I, I would think of of racial categories and gender categories and cultural categories, right? As, as identity categories, in the sense that um, you know they are ways that people are grouped and ways that people self-group and they have certain membership kind of criteria and there's debates and arguments over those membership uh, criteria and they're, they're social, right? So like, like social versus natural kinds here. But I think even if the membership criteria kind of are different in certain cases and some of them will ride off of like certain phenotypic or physiological characteristics for membership to, to take place and whatnot. But, but, they, but I would say what they share in common, if we're thinking of like race, gender, and culture, is that they are, they are salient um, identity categories for, for many people. Yeah, I, th I think that's very useful. Um, you know, if, if you're just talking about categories, then, then, the question, then the question is why should one category be treated differently from another? And you're saying there's no good reason. And so, and so there's something wrong with the way we're treating transgenderism versus transracialism or transculturalism. Then, then we need to have a whole discussion about whether all categories are the same category. And the, the, same the first chapter of this book that I've been taking too long to finish is all about the differences between these different kinds of categories. So I start out by considering, you know, what, what was also offered up as a sort of uh, intended reductio, I think, against transgender identification or, you know, as a way to delegitimize transgender identification for some people, which was, oh, if transgender, then trans race and then trans age and then trans species and then trans everything and obviously this is all nonsense um and so i start out by considering the categories of age and species and how those are uh different from categories like race and gender and then you know argue for different 
legitimate reasons we may have to categorize people in ways that are at odds with their self-identities. Because there actually are people who have also wanted to identify as different ages or, um, uh, or and some of whom identify as, um, you know, other kin or members of, of different species. Um, but I think, I think this is where the distinction between like broadly natural and social kinds becomes important. Not that that's a neat distinction um, by any means, but um, I think it can be a valuable distinction in thinking about some of these differences and how it is that we can respond to like the Dutch man, Emil Radelban, who said, I want to be identified as a 40 year old as opposed to 60 year old or whatever, because, because it's hurting my dating life. Well, look, as a, as a baby dolphin, I find this conversation exceptionally triggering. I'm entirely offended that you eradicate, you know, how I feel. Um, and <laughs> <rather than something. laughs> when you talk about these categories, you say how rigid those categories are. And it seems like over time we've destabilized sex as a category. So there's a sense in which, um, we're less rigid about what we consider the necessary and sufficient conditions to be a man or a woman. Um, but we've gotten more rigid about race in a way that seems odd um, in the sense that the scientific consensus is that, that race doesn't really exist, that it's uh, largely socially constructed. We definitely can't pick out a sort of set of phenotypical features which will tell us with certainty whether someone is um, black or white. Um, you know, if we think about trying to trace a nationality, I mean, that also becomes sort of quite blurry if we think about, you know, how national borders have shifted over time. Um, you know, it seems like, you know, we're quite happy for people to do conversions from one, from one citizenship to another citizenship or from one faith to another faith, um, you know, through some kind of process. Um, so it's interesting that there is this firm divide in people's intuitions. And, and I wonder if a lot of it doesn't come down to um, some kind of offense trigger as opposed to doing analytic thinking. Um, that the norms we've created are that to deny someone's sex transition is um, to be a bigot, um, but to, um, you know, sort of say that racial autosol has done something um, which we ought to accept is similarly seen as some kind of a racist view and, and therefore the bigotry is playing the work as opposed to a deep understanding of what's gone on. Uh, what I wonder about is how much of a role people's motives play as well. So we might think, for example, in the crew case, um, where her account really is that she's picked an identity because it advanced her career. Um, that at the moment in academia, it was more suitable for her to be um, to be black and teaching in African studies um, and that it was going to lead to a career advancement and that she did it with uh, a level of deceit um, to gain an advantage. Now, what's interesting in South Africa, we had you know, um, race classification during apartheid and um, people were incentivized to identify um, as being white um, or of being as mixed race as opposed to being black because it changed who they could marry and where they could live and what jobs they could have. Um, and so you very much had people identifying differently, not necessarily out of a sincere belief, um, but to game the system. And the feeling is that those people that gained the system in their favor did nothing wrong. Um, that if you were a light-skinned person who would have been classified by the state as black and discriminated against, that when you avoided that discrimination by 
trying to pass as white uh, that you know you were engaged in some form of legitimate civil disobedience um, and it's interesting to think whether that sh- that view should hold for the crew case say well you have a discriminatory environment in that particular faculty and that um, she you know made an attempt to pass as the preferred um, group um, and that that shouldn't be held against her I mean her case is interesting because she outs herself and holds it against herself. One of the major ongoing areas of debate in philosophy of race is is about the metaphysics of the category of race. And there are still many contemporary philosophers of race, like Michael Hardiman and Quayshawn Spencer, who who argue that there, there is a properly biological way of understanding race, although, as Hardiman calls it, it's a very minimalist um, manner of um, un- understanding it, like very superficial kind of biological features that nonetheless sort people into these groups. And that's obviously at odds with folks like Adam Hockman, who argue that that's mistaken. Um, but just to say that that's like more of an area of debate, I think, than some scholars make it out to be with the court of mon- sort of mantra of race as a social construct and everybody knows that. Um, I think it's a little more complicated than that, at least in the, the discussion. So that's one, one thing to say. And that the second was that, you know, you mentioned like what are people's reasons for you know, the hostility to a kind of transracial identification versus say transgender identification. And I think, I think that there are a lot of different reasons that explain it. And many of them have to do also with the, with the particular context of US racial politics and, you know, ongoing um, racial discrimination and marginalization. And, and I think fear is probably, um, of playing a much bigger role as well. Um, so fears about what could happen, um, you know, with things like affirmative action or other race-based rights. So I, so I, and I think, so I think that that's a big part too of the hostility. And it's, it's a big part now of these incredibly heated debates over transgender identity too, where like you're right to say that there's more acceptance of transgender identity, like broadly speaking, but but that's still more connected to gender than it is to sex. Like at, when it comes to the the idea of um, sex transition and wanting to identify, um, you know, your your sex differently on the birth certificate, like that that's where this debate, you know, between the the the, the gender critical feminists and the trans feminists is kind of very much still live. Um, you know, I um, am sympathetic to the the trans feminist side of that debate, but I think I think you're also witnessing like the the, the fears about you know certain um, sex based rights that could potentially be eroded. Again, I don't think that those fears are well founded empirically, but that's part of the concern. So I do argue um, in the book that that really the the proper ethical assessment of these identities does hinge on reasons for transition. Um, so I think we need an agent-based assessment of why people are identifying the way that they do. And um, in order to properly assess you know, a given transition claim, and I think this is true for all kinds of 
transitions. I mean, there are better and worse reasons that motivate people to identify in certain ways, some of which are just to gain affirmative action benefits maybe, but they don't really identify that way. Like Mindy Kaling's brother was in the news for having, having done that, like falsely identified as black, I think on a medical school application. Um, but then there are reasons that are uh, more defensible. Uh, and I, I think in the case of Krug, who you brought up, it's, it's really hard to know exactly what is going on in that case i mean so there's some evidence that she that she was about to be outed and so that maybe this sort of confessional um apology that she issued was not entirely self-motivated um but that there could have been some external pressures because i also think and i can speak to this personally you know what what people sometimes say publicly under the pressure of a, a mob and the, the intense fear of being uh you know jettisoned we've managed to cover some controversial topics in a thoughtful way and i think that's what good philosophy is about um being able to sort of wade into areas where people feel uncomfortable and do it you know with with grace which i think you've done um very well 